Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and this is Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. Well, today we continue our series, Life Lessons from King David, with a message called Civil War. So turn in your Bibles to 2 Samuel chapter 15 to 18 as we join Dr. Newfeld now. When David was anointed king in Hebron, he was at that time, you know, for seven and a half years, only the king of the tribe of Judah. But David had acted wisely and lovingly, praising the men of Jabesh Gilead for their support of King Saul, as well as, you know, making every effort to express kindness to the rest of Israel after the deaths of Abner and Ishbosheth. You know, he moved his capital from Hebron after he had captured Jerusalem, and through that had established a capital that was central to a unified nation. He saw the importance of fulfilling Deuteronomy chapter 12, and so he established Jerusalem as the center for the worship of the one true God, you know, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God who had blessed his people with a land, the God who had given his people a perfect law of righteousness. That God was going to be worshiped in Jerusalem. And not content with that, David had now moved decisively against all of his enemies on every side and had established borders that could be defended. The land was becoming secure and the people were rejoicing. And after the long period of the judges, you know, in which Israel only looked like a clan of feuding warlords, and after the disastrous reign of King Saul, finally, the nation feels like a nation under God. But as we've seen, all was not well. The man after God's own heart was now getting older and complacent. His focus had shifted from the pleasure of knowing God to now being a man obsessed with his harem and the trappings of power. Pure love of God and for his law and his promises and his people, you know, ever so slowly was drifting away. David could not have known that the battle within his heart was ever so much greater than the battles that he had faced on the battlefield. And truthfully, so it is with all of us. If we live long enough, when we look back on our own lives, we're going to see that we've passed through a number of stages. You know, childhood followed by adolescence and a, you know, a glowing vision of what was possible in our lives, those are among our earliest memories. And for those of us who came to Christ during those years, we may well remember how we committed our life to Christ. You'll remember your baptism and the pledge that you were buried your former life in the waters of baptism and that you've now been raised to newness of life in Christ. But depending on how your life evolved, you know, maybe there came the years of busyness and duties. Perhaps it was marriage and children. But even if you didn't experience that, you probably did experience the years of paying bills and making deadlines and feeling the pressure to perform somewhere. And through God's blessing, David had accomplished more than he would ever have dreamt. But then, as we have seen, when he had achieved so much, then came the years of sin. And as we have seen, his sin deeply stung his own family. If I were to describe his family life, I would call it lawless, dysfunctional, filled with hate, and eventually it came to murder. And you think, my dear listener, that your family's a mess? Think again. But now after so much dysfunction, Absalom, the son that murdered his brother, is back. And this son is more scheming and wicked than David ever had imagined. So I'm reading 2 Samuel 15, 1 to 6. After this, Absalom got himself a chariot and horses and 50 men to run before him. And Absalom used to rise early and stand beside the way of the gate. And when any man had a dispute to come before the king for judgment, 
Absalom would call to him and say, from which city are you? And when he said, your servant is of such and such a tribe in Israel, Absalom would say to him, see, your claims are good and right, but there is no man designated by the king to hear you. Then Absalom would say, oh, that I were judge in the land. Then every man with a dispute or cause might come to me, and I would give him justice. And whenever a man came near to pay homage to him, he would put out his hand and take hold of him and kiss him. Thus Absalom did to all Israel who came to the king for judgment. So Absalom stole the hearts of the men of Israel. Now in our day, we might say that Absalom was working the crowd. Absalom is in such stark contrast to the young King David. You know, when Saul was hunting David, David refused to raise his hand against the Lord's anointed. So Absalom, however, has no such qualms. He's on a mission to add to his one murder of his brother to the murder of his father. You know, when he says, oh, that I were judge in the land, he's appealing to a tradition. The king is the judge in the land. And here's the strange thing about all of this. If Absalom is being that public about it, he says what he wishes, that he were in place of his father, for then people would get justice. Well, now we have to imagine that this wouldn't have remained private. Surely David's advisors would have heard what he's saying, and surely they would have told David And given that David had many loyal supporters, you have to assume that they were urging David to act. David must have heard, but he doesn't act. Does he not believe the reports about Absalom? Or does David do in his family that which is now his trademark? When Amnon raped his sister, what did David do? Nothing. When Absalom came back and justice wasn't served, David still did nothing. And when Absalom is fomenting civil war, David does nothing. You know, one has to wonder whether or not Solomon's words in the beginning of Proverbs are a part of the lesson he learned from his own father's inaction regarding his own children. See, Proverbs 1, 8 to 10 says, Hear my son, your father's instruction, and forsake not your mother's teaching, for they are a graceful garland for your head and pendants for your neck. My son, if sinners entice you, do not consent. Then later in Proverbs 22, verse 6, Solomon says, Train up a child in the way he should go. Even when he is old, he will not depart from it. And so Solomon would give the importance of children learning wisdom from their parents and parents carefully training and disciplining their own children. David's pattern of inaction is the opposite, and that's alarming. But there's a lesson here for all of us who are parents, especially when you're parents of young children. You know, I think if my memory serves me correctly, I think it was James Dobson who once counseled that our children are like time bombs waiting to go off at adolescence. And our job as parents is to disarm the bomb before the timer signals the detonation. But those days are gone for David. And Absalom is a man now. He's murdered his brother. He's burned down the field of Joab, David's commander. And he's now openly preaching sedition. And no one has ever stood in his way and demanded that he give an account. The bomb is going off. So now, chapter 15, verses 7 to 10. And at the end of four years, Absalom said to the king, Please let me go and pay my vow, which I have vowed to the Lord in Hebron. For your servant vowed a vow while I lived in Geshur in Aram, saying, If the Lord will indeed bring me back to Jerusalem, then I will offer worship to the Lord. The king said to him, Go in peace. So he arose and went to Hebron. But Absalom sent secret messengers throughout all the tribes of Israel, saying, As soon as you hear the sound of the trumpet, then say, Absalom is king at Hebron. So you're going to remember that David was first anointed king in Hebron, and it must now be that Absalom has learned something from his father. 
if he wants to create a civil war, perhaps the people of Hebron remember their city as a capital of an independent empire, and perhaps they still have that fiercely independent spirit. It would appear that from his headquarters in Hebron that Absalom sent messengers throughout all of Israel, and he's asked them to come and join him. Verse 12 says that his conspiracy against the king grew strong, and here we have to ask why. You know, it might be that David's murder of Uriah was still well felt among the people. I mean, David had him killed so he could get his wife. I mean, how can anyone be loyal to that? It might also be that Absalom was young and David was old. It might also be that the corruption in Jerusalem was widespread. It might also be that some of the old animosity was rising, and here I mean, You know, those who felt that David had overthrown Saul, you know, that feeling had never died down. You know, perhaps now was the time to overthrow David and start all over again. You know, whatever the exact nature of the situation was, it seems to be that the army under Joab would have remained loyal to David, but that a great part of the northern tribes of Israel, those who had remained loyal to Saul, they aligned themselves with Absalom. Uh, Let's read verses 13 and 14. And a messenger came to David, saying, The hearts of the men of Israel have gone after Absalom. Then David said to all his servants who were with him at Jerusalem, Arise and let us flee, or else there will be no escape for us from Absalom. Go quickly, lest he overtake us quickly, and bring down ruin on us, and strike the city with the edge of the sword. And so David flees from Jerusalem. He takes with him his wives, his family, his servants, and key officers and other military troops go along. He leaves 10 of his concubines to keep the king's house, but everyone else goes. And as he leaves the city, he crosses over the Kidron Valley, and he goes up on the other side up the Mount of Olives, and the Bible says that he was barefoot. His head was covered, and he was weeping as he went. Do you ever find yourself wanting to spend time with the Lord in His Word, but don't seem to find the time? Well, here at Back to the Bible Canada, we understand some days are hectic and challenging. And that's why we would encourage you to check out our Back to the Bible Canada Bible Minute podcast. Each episode contains a one-minute audio Bible teaching message from Dr. John Newfeld, with new episodes Monday through Friday. These are perfect for those moments when you're seeking spiritual encouragement, but time is short. So you can download the Bible Minute podcast wherever you listen to your podcasts or visit backtothebible.ca slash apps. For more information, give us a call at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca. And thank you to all those who make Bible teaching resources like the Bible Minute available through your gracious gifts. Absalom enters the city of Jerusalem, proclaiming himself as Israel's next king. So 2 Samuel 16, 15 is a very telling verse. It says, Now Absalom and all the people, the men of Israel, came to Jerusalem, and Ahithophel with him. Now that's a telling verse because among all the people who had aligned themselves with Absalom, the very best asset Absalom had was Ahithophel. You know, we first learn about Ahithophel back in 2 Samuel 15, 12, and there we learned... And while Absalom was offering the sacrifices, he sent for Ahithophel, the Gileonite, David's counselor. 
from his city Gilo. And the conspiracy grew strong and the people with Absalom kept increasing. That's to say, very early on, one of David's key counselors, one of the very best men he had, had defected over to Absalom. And so very early on, we recognize this man is treasonous to his legitimate king. We also learned something else about Ahithophel, and that's found in 2 Samuel 16, 23. Now, in those days, the counsel that Ahithophel gave was as if one consulted the word of God. So was all the counsel of Ahithophel esteemed both by David and by Absalom. And so to have Ahithophel advise Absalom as to how to proceed to win over the entire kingdom and how to kill David and then how to build the kingdom, well, Absalom couldn't have wished for a better asset at this juncture. If we didn't know that God had promised David an enduring kingdom, we'd think David was done. But of course, we know the promise of God can't fail. David still, in spite of all of his sins, is the man God has chosen. How important that is for all of us to know that the calling of God is irrevocable. Yeah, the consequences of David's sin were everywhere felt, but we must not forget that while this king is a flawed king, sure enough, he is still a forgiven king. There's something about genuine repentance and true forgiveness that just changes everything. And David's a forgiven man, although it is God's will that David should go through this very dark valley. It would shape him and teach him. And so at this moment, David is fleeing Jerusalem and Absalom is entering the city. Let's keep reading. 2 Samuel 16, 20 to 22. Then Absalom said to Ahithophel, give your counsel, what shall we do? Ahithophel said to Absalom, go into your father's concubines, whom he has left to keep the house, and all Israel will hear that you have made yourself a stench to your father, and the hands of all who are with you will be strengthened. So they pitched a tent for Absalom on the roof, and Absalom went into his father's concubines in the sight of all Israel. This is, as we will remember, a fulfillment of what Nathan the prophet had said to David after his sin with Bathsheba. 2 Samuel 12, 11 and 12 says, Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house, and I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor, and he shall lie with your wives in the sight of this son. For you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel and before the son. And we know it came to pass, but God has not forgotten mercy to David. We know that even while Ahithophel is advising the king, something else has occurred. A man named Hushai, another one of David's counselors, has entered into the ranks of being a counselor to Absalom. But Hushai has been sent by David. He's a spy. David has said, perhaps Hushai can undo the counsel of Ahithophel, and that's where the drama becomes fascinating. And so now that Absalom is entrenched in Jerusalem, what is his next move? Ahithophel again gives counsel. He advises Absalom not to delay. Right now, David's on the run. He's tired. He's deeply discouraged. He's in the open with no walls to protect him. No doubt there's chaos among his troops. Go tonight. Don't delay. Take a troop of 12,000 men, attack him, and have them zero in on the king. We'll kill him, and this civil war is going to be over before it's even got a chance to get started. But right here, Absalom hesitates. Since he says, I have two counselors now, let's bring in Hushai and ask him if he agrees. And Hushai responds slowly. He begins by affirming the wisdom of Ahithophel, but then he says, yeah, but on this occasion, the counsel of Ahithophel is not good. Your father isn't confused, he's enraged. 
He's like a bear robbed of his cubs. Besides, he adds, your father's been a guerrilla fighter for many years when Saul was chasing him. And how did that go? And just like before, he's probably hidden himself in a cave somewhere. And when you send your men to look for him, he's going to use guerrilla tactics and he's going to strike some of your men by surprise. And when that happens, well, a rumor is going to circulate in Israel that your men have been slaughtered by David. And immediately, all the people who are with you are going to lose their courage. Well, so far, Hushai's doing quite well. He's playing on all Absalom's fears. Now, that might have or might not have worked, but Hushai is about to pull out his best weapon from the bag. He's now going to play to Absalom's ego because he knows that's his fatal weakness. 2 Samuel 17, 11 to 12. But my counsel is that all Israel be gathered to you from Dan to Beersheba as the sand by the sea for multitude and that you go to battle in person. So we shall come upon him in some place where he is to be found and we shall light upon him as the dew falls on the ground and of him and all the men with him, not one will be left. (laughs) Absalom already believed that all Israel was behind him and the vision of being this great and mighty leader to lead all Israel in the defeat of his father, well, that's something he just couldn't resist. As for Ahithophel, he knew he'd been outwitted. His plan meant Absalom was going to die. Ahithophel simply went home and hung himself. Tide was turning and Absalom didn't know it, but he was already a doomed man. Proverbs 11 verse 2 says that when pride comes, then also comes disgrace. And in a way, Absalom simply couldn't help himself. 1 Samuel 14, 25 says that in all Israel, there was no man so much to be praised for his handsome appearance as Absalom. He was hot. He knew it. And furthermore, no man had ever said no to him. And it's true of all men who've never tasted failure, defeat, or humiliation. Absalom came to believe he was invincible. There's a life lesson here, and each one of us need to take that to heart. God deliberately brings defeat and disappointment into the lives of his people so that we won't gain a foolish heart of pride. If at this moment you had looked at David and Absalom, you would have concluded, look, God's favoring Absalom. But Hebrews 12 reminds us that God disciplines and chastises the objects of his love. We need to endure hardships as discipline. That's what Hebrews 12 tells us. God is treating us as sons. He's preparing us to rule and reign with him in eternity. You see, God was not favoring the arrogant young Absalom. He was favoring the humbled and now suffering David. And all of us who are suffering, even if that suffering comes as a result of, you know, our own failure and sin, please don't despair. Have you confessed your sins? Have you turned from them? If you have, confess 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Look, you aren't suffering because God's punishing you. You're suffering because God loves you and is shaping you and will not allow sin to determine your character. In our story of the civil war in Israel, 2 Samuel 18 tells of the battle that Absalom so desperately wanted, the one that was there in his fantasy life where he was the hero of Israel. David had given a command to his troops, however, that when the battle was over, they were not to harm Absalom. One has to wonder what David was thinking. Would he have taken this treasonous son of his and simply restored him? He might have. Joab, his commander, says nothing but when the time comes for him and Absalom has his hair hopelessly ensnared in a tight enclosure of trees, Joab finds him and he takes three javelin and simply runs him through. A trumpet is then sounded. Absalom has been killed. 
In terror, all the men of Israel who followed Absalom know that the time of treason is over and they flee to their home. You see, David almost blew it when he wept so hard for Absalom that it seemed to his men that he didn't care anything about them and the sacrifice they had made for him to protect the kingdom. And Joab is furious now with the king, and David eventually, with Joab's insistence, comes out and blesses his troops. The civil war ends, and David returns to Jerusalem, but the unified kingdom that David once had now hangs by a very slender thread. God has indeed saved his king, but the king that God has saved is now a humbled man. In the end, that's a very good thing. Because you see, the Bible says that God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. And if you, my dear friend, are loved by God, God will oppose your pride and give you a humble heart. And out of love for David, he has not allowed him the luxury of pride and self-indulgence. Child of God, know this. God will not allow you to live in pride. Be thankful to him for that. Yield to his chastening hand and thank him for it. For in the end of the day, God is preparing for you a better future than you had ever imagined. Thanks, John. Here's the question I'd like to ask, and it has to do with David's humbling. What do you think we can learn from his his experience of humbling? You know, when we... um, go through our own sins and uh, when we face the consequences of our own sins, I mean, I think by very nature we're humbled. However, I think sometimes the shame that we feel of having been discovered or the shame of the consequences of our sin uh, can lead us to react, become defensive, um, and uh, really become very different people uh, because of that. And I think we need to guard our own souls in this matter. But there's something else I see here. I mean, the contrast between David, the father who has reasons for pride, and Absalom, who hasn't done anything yet, who's got no reason for pride. I mean, the the difference between them is so stark. I mean, Absalom is arrogant. David becomes humble. And uh, this should speak to every single one of our souls. God stands opposed to the pride uh, of anyone. He, He gives grace to the humble. Thanks again, John, and remember to join us again tomorrow as we conclude our series, Life Lessons from King David, right here on Back to the Bible Canada, where we teach the Bible. By now, many New Year's resolutions have been broken, if not abandoned. The cynic may suggest There is no use in making any resolutions, but that's not the Christian path. The Christian life is filled with intentions that are set despite our spotty track record. The solution is not to abandon our good intentions, but to persist by God's grace. On that note, if deepening your prayer life has been on your heart this year, then you'll want to request our latest booklet, 30 Days of Prayer, A Season of Conversation with God. Within its pages are 30 prayers selected by Dr. John that span the 16th to 19th centuries. They reflect the language of that day, but its content is rich and effectively reflects the longing of our hearts in prayer. To request your free copy, call us today at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca.